publicity trial of Penguin Books for, for the publication of an unexpurgated edition of Lady Chatterley's Lover, Dame Rebecca West was one of the witnesses called for the defence. Although she defended the novel from the charge of obscenity, she conceded that, quote, Lawrence has a great defect which impairs this book. He has absolutely no sense of humour. And a lot of the sentences in this book are, to my view, ludicrous. She was and is not alone in either part of this opinion, that Lawrence has no sense of humour, and that because he has no sense of humour, he unintentionally writes in a way which is ludicrous. Mellors and Lady Chatterley placing flowers in each other's pubic hair has been found by many to be hilarious, though I confess that I cannot see why. More generally, it is his tone and style that have been found fault with. His tone, at times, insistent, hyper-confident, bullying, preaching. And his style with its half-invented vocabulary and its repetition. Lawrence himself explained in his advertising leaflet for the American edition of Women in Love that... In point of style, found is, a fault is often found with the continual, slightly modified repetition. The only answer is that it is natural to the author, and that every natural crisis in emotion or passion or understanding comes from this pulsing, frictional to and fro which works up to a culmination. This commentary would itself be held up by the same kind of critic to the same kind of ridicule. And there is no doubt that he is being serious here. But am I wrong to detect behind that the ghost of a grin? Ghostly hands rubbing, rubbing together to see what the honest readers of America make of that. Over the last three decades, there's been increasing recognition that Lawrence did indeed have a sense of humour. And this has helped to restore his reputation from the nadir it reached as a result of the 1970s feminist critique. The Lawrence being presented today, both as in during this hour and in general nowadays, is perhaps harder both to ridicule and connectedly to object to than the sage who was presented in the 1950s and 60s. In 1996, a book devoted to this subject came out, Paul Eggert and John Worthen's Lawrence and Comedy. Comedy is used here in the narrow sense of humour, not the wider sense of involving a happy ending. I think, ultimately, that Lawrence did have a view of life, though, which was comedic in the wider sense, but that isn't the subject of this lecture today. Those who knew Lawrence found him fun, Jesse Chambers, the Eastwood friend on whom Miriam in Sons and Lovers is based, recalls that when he was in the mood, he could be very funny, particularly when mimicking the members of the Christian Endeavour class. Frida recalls him mimicking Bertrand Russell and the other fellows of Trinity College, Cambridge. He acted for me how after dinner they walked round the room with their hands on their backs and discussed the Balkans in the professional way, and really they knew nothing. 
Any of you who live within striking distance of Hampstead may, a couple of years ago, have seen a play which was premiered there called On the Rocks by Amy Rosenthal. This was about Lawrence and Frieda's life together in rock-strewn Cornwall during the First World War and the failure of their experiment in communal living when the short story writer Catherine Mansfield and her novelist boyfriend John Middleton Murray came to join them. The actor playing Lawrence was far too muscular and healthy looking and this play and this production exaggerated the extent to which Lawrence was the life and soul of the party. He would not, for example, as this play showed, grab a bottle of beer and lustily encourage others to do likewise. He drank little and disliked drunkenness. But I was glad that this play reminded people that Lawrence was indeed the kind of person who would corral his friends into parlour games like charades and brook no deny. Birkin in Women in Love resembles, as I said last week, Lawrence in several ways. The Birkin played by Alan Bates in the 1969 Ken Russell film of Women in Love also raises laughter with him, but less by being a party animal, as in that play, and more by being a teasing enfant terrible. Here he is taking tea at Breadleby. In fact, in the garden at Breadleby, he hardly gives any kind of speech except to rebuff Hermione irritably. There are no soliloquies. But Bates's speech on figs is a verbatim quotation of sections of Lawrence's poem, Figs, which was published in his collection, Birds, Beasts and Flowers, within four years of finishing Women in Love. And it's a testimony to the freeness of its verse that it resembles prose. Um, or rather, perhaps it indicates that speech, if transcribed, more resembles free verse than it resembles prose. In any case, it's an explicable deviation from the novel, just as the rumbustious Lawrence of On the Rocks is a forgivable distortion of the man himself. Lawrence would read out his poems to his friends, including at Garsington, the country seat of Lady Ottoline Morale, which lies just six miles from us, on which Breadleby was partially based. The Oxford Voice, one of the poems in his 1929 collection, Pansies, asks to be read out loud. It ends. We wouldn't insist on it for a moment, but we are. We are. You know we are. Superior. Or, in a genially exasperated vein, there is the little wowser, another pansy. This should certainly be read in an eastward accent, uh, which I'm going to have to make my best shot. There is a little wowser John Thomas by name, and for every blooming mortal thing, that little blighter's to blame. It was him as, put in, as made the first mistake of putting us in the world, forcing us out of the unawake and making us come uncurled. And then when you get in nicely on and life seems to begin, that little bleeder comes busting in with, hello boy, what about sin? And then it leads you by the nose after a lot of women and strips you stark as a monkey nut and leaves you never a trimming. And then somebody has to marry you to put him through his paces. Then when John Thomas don't worry you, it's your wife with her ears and graces. I think of all the little brutes as ever was invented, that little cod's the holy worst. I've chucked him. I've repented. 
Lawrence was also able to laugh warmly and delightedly at others. This kind of laughter combines an amused sense of the absurd, the unlearned, the clumsy and the preposterous with love of those who arouse this feeling in him. We find it in the narration of Tom Brangwyn's speech at Will and Anna's wedding in the rainbow. This is a rustic scene. The stepfather of the bride and his two brothers are getting drunk and ribald. They toast the virginal couple. Night and day and may they enjoy it. Hammer and tongs and may they enjoy it. And then Tom, the stepfather of the bride, finds himself inspired by a theory about angels and decides to make a speech. It seems to me as a married couple makes one angel, for an angel can't be less than a human being. And if it was only the soul of a man minus the man, then it would be less than a human being. His brother then raises the problem of women who never marry or who remarry, such as Tom's own wife. One of the women in the audience then recalls that her, angel, her, sorry, her child once thought he saw angels, and another woman recalls that when she was a child, she got an angel stuck up her nose. We used to call them thistle things, angels, as wafts about. The room then moves into a general discussion of things that children will get stuck up their noses. Quote, Tom Brangwen's mood of inspiration began to pass away. He forgot all about it and was soon shouting and roaring with the rest. This is the mildest satire of a rustic's version of Lawrence's own ideas. Tom enjoyed his inspiration, as did we, and then we are happy to get on with the party. We both share the spirit of this party and that of the newlywed couple, who later that night pause in their lovemaking to giggle at their drunken fathers who are singing at them through the window. Often, though, Lawrence uses humour when he is out of humour, as a weapon of attack. In his 1927 essay on John Galsworthy, he described what he means by satire. And I should explain in this quotation that his phrase, social being, denotes the mode in which a soul exists in relation to society. Satire exists for the very purpose of killing the social being, showing him what an inferior he is, and with all his parade of social honesty, dishonest to life, dishonest to the living universe on which he is parasitic as a louse. By ridiculing the social being, the satirist helps the true individual, the real human being, to rise to his feet again and to go on with the battle. Here then, we have humour as the demonstration of superiority. One of the four major theories of humour alongside incongruity, relief and play. And in Lawrence's case, the demonstration of superiority has the aim of annihilation. In How Beastly the Bourgeois Is, which is another poem from Pansies, the sarcasm is wielded like a battle axe. How beastly the bourgeois is, especially the male of the species. Presentable, eminently presentable. Shall I make you a present of him? Isn't he handsome? Isn't he healthy? Isn't he a fine specimen? Doesn't he look the fresh, clean Englishman outside? Isn't he God's own image, tramping his 30 miles a day after partridges or a little rubber ball? Wouldn't you like to be like that, well-off, 
and quite the thing. The poem ends, standing in their thousands, these appearances in damp England. What a pity they can't all be knocked over like sickening toadstools and left to melt back swiftly into the soil of England. A very different, resigned satire can be found in Lady Chatterley's Lover. If you've read this, you'll remember that before Lady Chatterley meets Mellors, she has a brief affair with a guest of her husband's called Michaelis. Michaelis is an Irish playwright. Ultimately, he is an unsympathetic character, but he embodies several characteristics of Lawrence himself in exaggerated form. He is an outsider to the English upper classes, whom he satirises in his plays, but whose hospitality he nonetheless accepts. He is unhappy, lonely, and without glee. What is interesting is the closeness of his own gloomy sense of irony to that of the narrator who describes it. For example, Michaelis was the last word in what was caddish and bounderish. He was discovered to be anti-English, and to the class that made the discovery, this was worse than the dirtiest crime. He was cut dead and his corpse thrown into the refuse can. Bear in mind that Lawrence was writing this novel in Italy about the country which had first published and then suppressed and burned his rainbow. Demanding changes to women in love because of threats of libel and which had suspected him of anti-English activities during the war and in which the novel on which he was engaged at the time stood not a chance of publication. He did, in feel, he did indeed feel cut dead by England. Michaelis talks to Connie. Am I altogether a lonely bird? he asked with his queer grin of a smile that looked almost as if he had toothache. It was so wry and his eyes were so un perfectly, unchangingly melancholy or stoical or disillusioned or afraid. The part of the novel which is concerned with Ragby, Clifford and his flannel trousered Cambridge intransigence wears precisely such a queer melancholy grin that looks like spiritual toothache. Connie then takes pity on Michaelis, stroking the nape of his neck when he lies his head in her lap, which then moves smoothly into their first sex. Later in the novel itself, along, sorry, later the novel itself, along with Connie, finds a better satisfaction in Mellors. That is when the, no when the narrative itself loses its grimace and breaks into a smile of serious delight. Much Laurentian satire, though, is not sad, but exuberant. And one of its primary uses is in the deflation of idealism. Two works, which I mentioned last week, do this in particular, Fantasia of the Unconscious and Mr Noon. Mr. Noon is a semi-autobiographical novel which Lawrence wrote in 1920-21, but abandoned unfinished. The manuscript ends halfway through a sentence. Its narrator is the most rumbustious and controlling of any of Lawrence's works. As Melvin Bragg says in his introduction to the novel, 
He panders, flatters, scorns, teases, dismisses, bullies and badgers the poor reader, taking the scruff of his neck in one fist and the seat of the pants in the other and frog-marching him up and down the page. Here is an example. An anonymous lady, she may even be yourself, gentle reader, once wrote to me thus, you who can write so beautifully of stars and flowers, why will you grovel in the ditch? I might answer her, or you, gentle reader. Thus, you who wear such nice suede shoes, why do you blow your nose? Often it is not the nose, but the bottom, which this Rabelaisian narrator uses to remind us of our grossness. He reminds us that we have one, gives it a few robust kicks, and from time to time pushes us down onto it. There is no sadism in this. These are the acts of an amused parent dealing with a pretentious five-year-old. Except since we're adults, he instead can be sarcastic. Dear drafty uplift, bellow out our skirts and trouser legs like zeppelin balloons till we whirl up into the sky whence we can look down on our fellow men. In love, of course, butt end uppermost. It's a risky thing to do, of course, if your trouser seat is worn a little thin. The balloon of the spiritual inflatus might then burst and let you flop on that same pathetic mankind, which will not welcome you at all if you come down like a brickbat. Another favourite metaphor for Lawrence for pretentiousness was Mount Pisgah. This is the mountain from which Moses saw the promised land for the first time. Lawrence does not believe in the promised land, at least not one which can be discerned from what he would consider a spiritual elevation. There is an essay called Climbing Down Pisgah, but in fact the following quotation concerning Pisgah comes from Fantasia of the Unconscious. The promised land, if it be anywhere, lies away beneath our feet. Idealism and materialism amount to the same thing on top of Pisgah, and the space is very crowded. We're all cornered on our mountaintop, climbing up one another and standing on one another's faces in our scream of excelsior. They say that that way lies the new Jerusalem of universal love, and over there, the happy valley of indulgent pragmatism. And there, quite near, is the chirpy land of the vitalists. And in those dark groves, the home of successful analysis, surnamed Psycho. But Lord, I can't see anything. Help me, heaven, to a telescope, for I see blank nothing. I'm not going to try anymore. I'm going to sit down on my posterior and slather full speed down this Pisgah, even if it cost me my trouser seat. So ho, away we go. The political ideal he wags his wag waggish finger at in particular is the American ideal of liberty. This mock heroic passage concerns the book Fantasia of the Unconscious itself. And when I lay this little book at the foot of the Liberty statue, that brawny lady is not going to look down her nose and bawl, do you see any green in my eye? Of course I don't, dear lady, I only see the reflection of that torch. Or is it a carrot, which you are holding up to light the way into New York Harbour? Well, many an ass has strayed across the uneasy paddock of the Atlantic to nibble your carrot, dear lady. 
Nevertheless, and in spite of all this, up trots this here little ass and makes you a nice present of this little book. You needn't sniff and and glance at your carrot scepter, Lady Liberty. You needn't throw down the thinnest carrot pairing you can pair off and then say, why should I pay for this tripe, this wordy mass of rather revolting nonsense? You can't pay for it, darling. If I don't make you a present of it, you could never buy it. So don't shake your carrot scepter and feel supercilious. Here's a gift for you, missus. You can look it in its mouth too. Mind it doesn't bite you. No, you needn't bother to put your carrot behind your back. Nobody wants to snatch it. The 1969 film of Women in Love shows Birkin also in a deflationary mode in a scene just after the one I've shown you. You may remember that at Breadleby, Hermione orchestrates Gudrun and Ursula in a little ballet in the style of the Russian ballet of Pavlova and Nijinsky. Um, as in the last extract, the film departs from the novel, which, like Lawrence himself, took the ballet russe seriously. The women dance well, and Gudrun and Ursula during this ballet arouse their respective lovers-to-be. But like the fig-eating scene, the adaptation here is true to an aspect of Lawrence, his desire to deflate spiritual pretension. Mocking is a word you often find in his writings, and more often than not, approvingly used. At the wedding, at the beginning of Women in Love, Laura calls to her groom when he finally arrives at the church. Tibbs, Tibbs, she cried in her sudden mocking excitement, standing high on the path in the sunlight and waving her bouquet. She then races him into church. This is an example of the kind of spontaneous behaviour of which Lawrence approves. Elsewhere, mockery has a sexual charge. In their Tyrolean Gasthaus, Birkin dances the Schulplatten with Ursula. Quote, he seemed to have turned into something wicked and flickering, mockive, mocking, suggestive, quite impossible. Ursula was frightened of him. Clear before her eyes, as in a vision, she could see the sardonic, licentious mockery in his eyes. When they then go to bed, his eyes, his lids drip, dropped with a faint motion of satiric contempt. And she gave way. He might do as he would. His licentiousness was repulsively attractive. But he was self-responsible. She would see what it was. What it almost certainly is, is anal sex, the one instance of it in the novel. The mockery and satire involved in it aren't far distant from Lawrence's mockery of Lady Liberty or of the lady in the suede shoes. This is the mockery of the satires of Pan, for whom lust is inextricably connected with amusement, and whose faces above their erections wear a perpetual grin. Lawrence liked Pan and approved of his male characters, at times resembling him. For Lawrence, another major use of satire is as a means of self-defence. His friend Catherine Carswell, in her memoir of him, The Savage Pilgrimage, likened him to Joey in The Punch and Judy show. He pops up from the grave and mocks those who would reduce him to a formula. The simile is apt. His works do bop us on the head, and in particular, they bop his critics. The foreword to Fantasia of the Unconscious is titled An Answer to Some Critics. 
he methodically holds various criticisms which had been made of psycho uh, psychoanalysis and the unconscious up to ridicule by selectively quoting juxtaposing opposed criticisms, for example, the accusation that he was obsessed by sex and that he was prudishly prejudiced against Freud, by quips, by refuting the, the criticisms, and by mocking apostrophes. Dear Mr Weaver, since many of his critics had held extracts of his writing up to ridicule, he is meeting fire with fire. One critic concludes... This is altogether a remarkable book, a book which will appeal to a limited few and which to the generality of readers will seem only a wordy mass of rather revolting nonsense. As for me, Lawrence says, I feel the generality of readers as a wor wordless mass of rather revolting nonsense. He, sar he sarcastically neutralises criticism of his use of an Aryan idea. Of course, my dear critic, the ancient Aryans were just doddering the old buffers, babbling the babes. But as for me, I have some respect for my ancestors and believe they had more up their sleeve than just the marvel of the unborn me. The satire of his critics gets sourer in the chapter of Women in Love called Gudrun in the Pompadour. The Pompadour is based on Café Royale, a society café in Piccadilly in London, which has just been destroyed to make way for a block of flats. Three bohemian friends, Halliday, Lubidnikov and the Pussum, are there. Gudrun and Gerald come in, but choose not to join them. Quote, the Halliday party was tipsy and malicious. They were talking out loudly about Birkin, ridiculing him on every point. Oh, don't make me think of Birkin, Halliday was squealing. He makes me perfectly sick. He is as bad as Jesus. Lord, what must I do to be saved? He giggled to himself, tipsily. Do you remember, came the quick voice of the Russian, the letters he used to send? Desire is holy. Oh, yes, cried Halliday. Oh, how perfectly splendid. Why, I've got one in my pocket. I'm sure I have. And he finds that he does indeed have a letter from Birkin on him. This is one of the best. There is a phrase in every race, he read in the sing-song, slow, distinct voice of a clergyman reading the scriptures, when the desire for destruction overcomes every other desire. In the individual, this desire is ultimately a desire for destruction in the self. I hope he's going ahead with the destruction of himself, said the quick voice of the Russian. There's not much to destroy in him, said the Pussum. He's so thin already, there's only a fag end to start on. Do let me go on. A return along the flux of corruption to the original rudimentary conditions of being. Oh, he was always going on about corruption, said the Pussum. He must be corrupt himself to have it so much on his mind. After a while, Gudrun, who has not been part of this group, goes to their table and asks to see the letter to see whether it is genuine or not. May I see? Smiling foolishly, he handed it to her as if hypnotised. Thank you, she said. And she turned and walked out of the café with the letter, all down the brilliant room between the tables in her measured fashion. It was some moments before anybody realised what was happening. They call for her to be stopped, but she does walk out unhindered and outside says to Gerald, I could have killed them. 
dogs. They are dogs. Why is Rupert such a fool as to write such letters to them? Why does he give himself away to such canai? It is a thing that cannot be born. This is not just Lawrence speaking. The episode is based on a very similar event which took place in the Café Royale on the 1st of September 1916. Catherine Mansfield was there with two other friends of Lawrence, the translator S.S. Kotelyansky and the painter Mark Gertler. They overheard two men and a woman on another table talking about, um, talking about various authors. Then a woman pulls out a copy of Amores, the most recent of Lawrence's collections of poetry, and the party starts dissecting it in perfect English using long words. Catherine goes to their table, asks to see the book, and leaves the café with it. Kotelyansky then told Lawrence about this episode, and he gave Catherine the honour of an extra chapter in his novel, chapter 27. The passage in the novel not only serves to attack Lawrence's critics, though it does do this, it also serves to sweeten the pill of his and Birkin's own doctrines by admitting that he knew he could be and was seen as a preacher. According to the OED, a wowser, as in the poem a little wow The Little Wowser, is a puritanical enthusiast or fanatic, or one who wants to compel everybody else to do whatever he thinks right and abstain from everything he thinks wrong. With this knowledge, the poem is therefore not only an obscene poem, it obtains something of the cast of a wry confession. Lawrence knew that some people might smile at the locution and ideas in, for example, Fantasia of the Unconscious. He knew that it might happen and he tried to forestall it. In that little book, Psychoanalysis and the Unconscious, I tried rather wistfully to convince you, dear reader, that you had a solar plexus and a lumbar ganglion and a few other things. I warn the generality of readers that this present book will seem to them, here the phrase recurs, it clearly stuck with him, will seem to them only a rather more revolting mass of wordy nonsense than the last. I would warn the generality of critics to throw this book away in a waste paper basket without more ado. As for the limited few, I may as well say straight off that I stick to the solar plexus. That statement alone, I hope, will thin their numbers considerably. One is reminded of the description of Tom Brangwen when he starts to give his speech on angels, his eyes twinkling and yet quite profound, for he was deeply serious and hugely amused at the same time. In Mr Noon, he is often genially self-parodic. And now, gentle reader, aha, I feel you shy at those two words. Yes, I admit it, they are my dilly-dilly-dally, come and be killed. Yes, I am going to apostrophise and or moralise, and why shouldn't I? If you don't want to read, turn on to page... And here there's a break in the manuscript. Given that the novel was abandoned, unfinished, and not published until 1984, the freedom with which he browbeats his readers would have been affected by his sense that they didn't exist. It's significant that both of these works, with Fantasia of the Unconscious, are from the early 20s. His experience of the First World War living with a German in England, 
His interpretation of the war as the spiritual death throes of English society and his great difficulties in getting his novels into print broke something in Lawrence. As early as 1915, he wrote in a letter to Bertrand Russell, I am ashamed to write any real writing of passionate love to my fellow men. Only satire is decent now. Compare this with T.S. Eliot's statement in The Metaphysical Poets of 1920, poets in our civilization as it exists at present must be difficult. These contrasting statements epitomise an important difference between Eliot's and Lawrence's writings in the 20s. But in this respect, Lawrence was in tune with his age. The 1920s saw probably the greatest flowering of satire in England since Swift died in 1745, with Forster, War and Aldous Huxley, who was Lawrence's closest male friend from 1926 onwards. When Lawrence died in a guest house above Vence in 1930, one of England's best surviving satirical novelists was at his side. Indeed, two years earlier, he, Huxley, had caricatured Lawrence as the character Rampion in his own satirical novel, Point Counterpoint. So if ever you read Point Counterpoint, watch out for Rampion. But a lot of 20s satire, unlike, say, Swift's Unmodest Proposal, does not blaze with righteous indignation. It had an ironic detachment, as though since the First World War had been launched, justified and advertised in a spirit of seriousness, your country needs you. Seriousness itself was not quite decent. The opening line of the second draft of Lady Chatterley's Lover sums it up. Ours is essentially a tragic age, so we refuse to take it tragically. The shattered Clifford Chatterley, who literally embodies the war, is described as follows. Having suffered so much, the capacity for suffering had to some extent left him. He remained strange and bright and cheerful, almost one might say chirpy. There is something of this chirpiness in a lot of the consumptive Lawrence's writing of the 20s. As he says himself of Aaron's Rod, it is funny it amuses me terribly. Yet the Doric syntax of those sentences contradicts their meaning. It is, again, as if said through gritted teeth. Here is one of his most political poems called A Sane Revolution. Bear in mind, Lawrence was living in fascist Italy, which, as Aaron's Rod records, had been close to communist revolution. And he experienced new, or was aware of numerous bomb attacks in public places. If you make a revolution, make it for fun. Don't do it in ghastly seriousness. Don't do it in deadly earnest. Do it for fun. Don't do it because you hate people. Do it just to spit in their eye. Don't do it for the working classes. Do it so that we can all of us be little aristocracies on our own and kick our heels like jolly escaped asses. Don't do it anyhow for international labour. Labour is the one thing man has had too much of. Let's abolish labour. Let's have done with labouring. Work can be fun and men can enjoy it, then it's not labour. Let's have it so. Let's make a revolution for fun. Instability itself is a quality which Lawrence embraces. 
At Gredelby, Birkin, as the film showed, joins in the dancing which follows the ballet russe. Birkin, quote, did not yet know how to dance their convulsive ragtime sort of dancing, but he knew how to begin. Birkin, when he could get free from the weight of the people present whom he disliked, danced rapidly and with a real gaiety. And how Hermione hated him for this irresponsible gaiety. Now I see, cried the Contessa excitedly, Mr. Birkin, he is a changer. He is not a man. He is a chameleon, a creature of change. He is not a man, he is treacherous, not one of us, said itself over in Hermione's consciousness, and her soul writhed in black subjection to him because of his power to escape, to exist other than she did, because he was not consistent, not a man, less than a man. Birkin's ideas, as I mentioned last week, change abruptly and contradict each other over the novel. What matters, though, is not this, but the author's attempt to interpret his soul. To be spiritually alive is to be what the Contessa calls a changer. Lawrence was well aware of the limitations of language. Tom Brangwen's monologue on angels is introduced. Tom Brangwen wanted to, spread, to make a speech. For the first time in his life, he must spread himself wordily. Lawrence, too, felt the urge to spread himself wordily nearly all the time. But he was well aware that wordy spreading often entailed an element of the ridiculous, and not just if one lacked a university education. One way in which Lawrence demonstrates his impatience with and scepticism of language is by using certain words on different occasions, not just in different ways, but in flatly contradictory ways. And it's good as readers of Lawrence to be aware of this. Consciousness, for example, can be a good thing. It can also be a bad thing. The foreword to Women in Love extols the struggle into conscious being, but Hermione's ache of her effort at consciousness leaves her spent and ashen in her body. Conscious sometimes means unconscious. Birkin describes the fetish as representing really ultimate physical consciousness, mindless, utterly sensual. Two senses of consciousness meets when, in excurs, Birkin drove on in a strange new wakefulness, the tension of his consciousness broken. He seemed to be conscious all over. Many of Birkin's words are found debased in other situations. Birkin wants an inhuman connection, but machines are inhuman. Words with the same root are played off against each other. Organic, which is positive, Organisation, generally negative. Equality, as in democracy, negative. Equilibrium, as in that between a man and a woman, generally positive. Idea, final, complete and absolute are all words which can go either way. So let the reader beware. Lawrence allows Ursula to mock Birkin when he spreads himself wordily. This is their first tea party. But don't you think me good-looking, she persisted in a mocking voice. He looked at her to see if he felt that she was good-looking. I don't feel that you're good-looking, he said. Not even attractive, she mocked bitingly. He knitted his brows in sudden exasperation. Don't you see it's not a question of visual appreciation in the least. I don't want to see you. I've seen plenty of women. I'm sick and weary of seeing them. I want a woman I don't see. 
I'm sorry I can't oblige you by being invisible, she laughed. Yes, he said, you are invisible to me if you don't force me to be visually aware of you, but I don't want to see you or hear of you. What did you ask me for tea then? She mocked. I think you were very silly. I think you want to tell me you love me and you go all this way round to do it. All right, he said, looking up with sudden exasperation. Now go away then and leave me own. I don't want any more of your meretricious persiflage. Is it really persiflage, she mocked, her face really relaxing into laughter. She interpreted it that he had made a deep confession of love to her. But he was so absurd in his words also. But this argument between them and others like it in the novel does not just serve to qualify Birkin. They also have the virtue of pitting the lovers in opposition. Lawrence's essay, The Crown, which he wrote between the rainbow and women in love, argues that life itself is based on opposition. The flux of corruption, which was mentioned in the letter to Halliday, is a necessary counterpart to the flux of creation. To paraphrase this essay, the bestial lion forever fights the virginal unicorn. And between them, they hold aloft the crown. It would be wrong for the lion ever to lie down with the lamb. This would be the end of life for them both. Birkin and Ursula, therefore, ought to argue. In one of the most, ending, uh, most open endings in the whole history of the novel, Birkin ends women in love with the words, I don't believe that. Lawrence and Frieda themselves fought spectacularly. Their friend Enid Hopkin recalls visiting them in 1918. I remember the group around the piano in the candlelight, Frieda singing with a cigarette hanging out of the corner of her mouth, and Frieda would strike wrong notes. After several of these, Lawrence would lose his temper and scream at her. Frieda would scream back. The whole scene was very dramatic as we stood in mid-chorus. Suddenly it was all over and Frieda would settle down and go back, to go back to playing and we would all start to sing again. At such moments they resemble perhaps not so much Birkin and Ursula but Mr Noon and his German lover Johanna and the narrator defies us, gentle readers, to disapprove. Out of this very promising looking bag of a story which I have this moment shown to you tied up with a pretty blue ribbon of peace, I am going to let out what? The cat. I am going to let the cat out of the bag, or even two whirling fur-flying cats, all claws and sparks. Dear Gilbert, he had found his mate and his match. He had found one who would give him tit for tat and tittle for tattle. My dear, I mean you, gentle reader, all life and splendour is made out of the union of indomitable opposites. With its iridescent humour and seriousness, self-parody and self-assertion, valorization of argument and refusal to tolerate dissent, this passage suggests a way of reading Lawrence without taking umbrage at his self-confidence, despairing at his contradictions, or taking flight at some of his views. At certain moments, he even endorses relativism, acknowledging that the truths which he feels are not necessarily truths for all of us. In Fantasia, he reassures us, don't get alarmed if I say things. Just apply a little theory of relativity and realise that what I say is not what you hear, but something uttered in the midst of my isolation 
and arriving strangely changed and travel-worn down the long curve of your own individual circumambient atmosphere. And this perception points towards the quite different kind of humour with which I want to end. It's found in the poem Bare Fig Trees of the Early Twenties. Let me sit down beneath the many branching candelabrum that lives upon this rock and laugh at time and laugh at dull eternity and make a joke of stale infinity within the flash scent of this wicked tree that has kept so many secrets up its sleeve and has been laughing through so many ages at man and his uncomfortablenesses and his attempt to assure himself that what is so is not so up its sleeve. This is divine laughter of the laughing Buddha, in whom Lawrence had considerable interest. Or, as the preacher of Ecclesiastes puts it, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. This is the wisdom next to which all human wisdom is but folly. Admittedly, this is not Lawrence's usual position. Truth for him is not normally to be found in Nirvana. He is down among us, fighting harder than most of us to work out what is really going on. And he doesn't oblige us to follow his path. If I try to write down what I see, why not? If a publisher likes to print the book, all right. And if anybody wants to read it, let him. But why anybody should read one single word if he doesn't want to, I don't see. Unless, of course, he is a critic who has to scribble a dollar's worth of words no matter how. Touché. So go ye and scribble. Thank you.